Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I am your host today, Philippe Durand, partner with Auguste de Buzy in France. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are connecting with one of our members representing England and Wales. Joining us on the program is Ellie Murray. Ellie is a senior counsel with Trevor Smith LLP in London. As our world continues to become more and more digitized, issues and concerns of privacy and protection continue to become elevated as well. Protecting individuals and their personal data has become a priority for many countries. And this is particularly true for employment lawyers when it comes to addressing employees' data and what you can and what you cannot do with such data. Our guest will be updating us today on the current situation in the United Kingdom and the impact of data protection regulations, particularly now that the UK has left the EU. Ailey, welcome to the program and how are you doing today? Thank you, Philippe. I'm very well, thanks. I'm delighted to be here with you. Excellent. And you're calling from London, I guess, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, very good. Now, the GDPR, for some people in our audience who are not familiar with that, is really a EU regulation, which was passed, I think, sometime in 2018 or something like that, when the UK was part of the European Union. Now that the United Kingdom left the European Union, I think that the first question that is crossing our mind is what is the impact of the GDPR now after Brexit once the UK has left the EU? Yes. And so the short answer is, is that the GDPR no longer applies in the UK now that we have left the EU. But we have our own version called the UK GDPR, which is virtually identical to the EU GDPR. So with the UK's departure from the EU, all of the EU regulations cease to apply in the UK from the 31st of December 2020, so the end of the Brexit transition period. And to deal with this, the UK government introduced legislation to bring the entire text of all relevant EU regulations onto the UK statute book, effectively as a snapshot of the EU law as at the end of the transition period. There were some minor tweaks to the text of the EU regulations to ensure that they were fit for life outside of the EU as well. And in the case of the EU GDPR, the full text of the regulations was brought across onto the UK statute book and became the UK GDPR. So a number of the provisions were then repealed, such as those providing for cooperation with other EU regulators and those relating to decisions of the EU Data Protection Board, as the UK wouldn't be subject to these obligations after leaving the EU. A few other provisions were amended as well. So, for example, to clarify that the UK version of the regulation only applies to the UK and not the EU and to remove references to other EU legislation. I think it's important to note, though, that the changes have made little difference in practice to UK businesses, because to date, the UK hasn't changed the substance of the rules on how personal data should be treated. What will be interesting to see is how the two regimes develop in future, and how closely aligned the UK remains to the EU data protection regime. The UK government has already launched consultation on possibly reforming the UK data protection regime, And some of the proposals do include amending UK GDPR to reduce some of the paperwork. So, for example, removing some requirements around data protection impact assessments and maintaining detailed records of data processing. So these amendments could be quite significant because currently the UK has in place an adequacy status with the EU, which enables the free flow of data between the EU and the UK. Now, if the UK diverges too far in future from the EU, 
then we could lose that adequacy status, making transferring data between the EU and the UK much more difficult. But it's far too early to tell at this stage what will happen. And the key point for now is to note that the two data protection regimes are closely aligned. Interesting. It reminds me that for other UK employment rules, you had to keep basically the same ones as the one you had inherited from the EU and the similar rules were, were applied for other employment rules other than GDPR. Now, Ailey, if we try to focus on practical issues for our audience today, when it comes to employee data or HR data that would fall within the, the Search UK rules, what, what would be the, the sort of data we're talking about? Well, as with the EU GDPR, any information about an individual from which that individual can be identified will be categorized as personal data and will fall within the UK GDPR. So anything that relates to the employee would be personal data and would fall within the ambit of UK GDPR. So examples of personal data would be the employee's name, email addresses, gender, date of birth, a photograph, home address, signature and, and phone number. Personal data would also include things like their employment contract, any appraisals, their payroll records, and their national insurance number. So you can see that it's very wide, a very wide definition, and it essentially anything that identifies the employee. Now, Ailey, we've been going through the COVID situation, and uh, we all know that GDPR had a quite interesting impact in that specific situation. As far as the UK is concerned, how would you portray any special rules that will exist in the UA for dealing with employees' health-related data? Yes, Philippe. So there, there are quite a few rules for, for special data. I suppose it's important to start off by clarifying that, much like under the EU GDPR, there are effectively two different types of categories of data when we consider the UK GDPR. There is personal data, which needs to be treated very carefully, but there is also special category data, which is personal data which needs even more protection because it is particularly sensitive. The UK GDPR gives us examples of special category data, and it includes health data, data about a person's political opinions, their racial or ethnic origin, or their sexual orientation. And as this data is more sensitive, the UK GDPR sets out extra restrictions and safeguards on how it can be processed. So to lawfully process employee health data, employers first have to identify a lawful basis for processing it under Article 6 of the UK GDPR. And there are six potentially lawful bases under Article 6, of which consent is one. However, we would generally advise employers against relying on consent as a lawful basis, as it's unlikely that to be seen as freely given in an employment context, given the perceived power imbalance between the employer and the employee. And so employers will usually rely on, on the legitimate interest basis. And the UK Data Protection Regulator, which is the Information Commissioner's Office or the ICO, has acknowledged that this ground is likely to be the most appropriate in an employment context. And employers should generally be able to rely on this ground to process any health data or any other special category data if the processing is necessary for the purpose of the legitimate interests pursued by the employer. For example, the employer needs to know whether the employee is fit for work and if the employee is unwell, when they're likely to be able to return to work. So the employer's legitimate interest must not be overridden by the interest's or the fundamental rights and freedoms of the employee as the data subject. So effectively, this will be a balancing exercise, weighing up the needs of the employer against the rights and freedom of the employee. And another ground that employers often rely on is the legal obligation ground, which, as the name suggests, is if the processing of the data is necessary for the employer to comply with their legal obligation. 
So employers often need health data to comply with their obligations in relation to ensuring health and safety. And also there are, there are particular legal obligations on employers who employ disabled people. So processing health data would be necessary where the employee is disabled. Now, Ellie, you were referring to another type of conditions or requirements regarding the processing of this special category data you just talked about. Could you say a few words about that now? Yes. So in addition to having a lawful basis for processing under Article 6, employers also have to identify a separate condition for processing special category data under Article 9 of the UK GDPR. And there are 10 separate conditions under Article 9, some of which overlap with the lawful basis under Article 6. And essentially, the processing activity must also fall into one of those special conditions. So explicit consent from the employee is one of those special conditions. Although, as we previously said, we would advise against employers relying on consent, as it's often not seen as freely given in the employment relationship. Another possible condition could be that the employer is complying with an obligation under employment law. So this might be relevant where employers are maintaining records of statutory sick pay and maternity pay or ensuring their health, safety and welfare of their employees. The employer must also be able to justify why processing of this data is necessary, which, in other words, means that there must be a reasonable and proportionate way of meeting specific rights or obligations and the employer must not have more data than they need. A further requirement under the UK GDPR when it comes to processing health data is that employers must have an appropriate policy document in place, which sets out, amongst other things, the condition they're relying upon to process the data, how long they intend to retain the data for, and when they intend to delete it. So it's important that this policy document is retained for six months after the relevant processing has come to an end. And I think generally it's a good idea to regularly review it. Finally, the UK GDPR requires that a data protection impact assessment is carried out for any type of processing which is likely to be high risk, for example, processing special category data on a large scale. Therefore, this is advisable for employees who process large amounts of health data, which will be most employers. It is also important to provide employees with a privacy statement or a notice which sets out what data they'll be collecting from them, what it will be used for, and who it's going to be shared with. And so you should include something general about health data in that too. Well, Ellie, actually, we do recognize quite a few general conditions and requirements we are all familiar with within the EU, although I can only speak for France. Thank you for that. Now, we've been talking about COVID, of course, because COVID is not far away from us. And I think I will have another question for you, Ellie, which would be, what data protection challenges have you been seeing recently and that the COVID pandemic would have created on a more practical basis, let's say. Yeah, so we've we've seen that the pandemic has created a need for all organisations to process personal data of lots of different purposes. For example, to manage and protect their workforce, their customers and the public. And many of these processing activities weren't part of business as usual for many employers. And so established protocols and policies weren't often in place. And let's say, for example, at the start of the pandemic, employers were having to keep records on where their employees had travelled in case they'd been to any high-risk areas. And then they also had to keep records of anyone who'd been in contact with their positive COVID case or anyone who had got COVID themselves. And so this threw up um, questions about who to share such information with, which other employees needed to be told if a colleague had COVID, and also if someone had come into contact with someone who had COVID. Uh, I think that uh, like us in France and in many other countries, we had a lot of questions coming up <laughs> regarding the vaccination status 
of employees. So what would be your point of view from a UK perspective? Yeah, so this this was obviously the other big issue in the UK, as you say, as with everywhere else, was whether employers should check and record their employees' vaccination status. And I would say the majority of employees in the UK chose not to ask employees about their vaccination status. And that was because it was special category data. So you needed a lawful basis for processing it. And as I mentioned earlier, that can be difficult. The obvious basis which people would have used would be that it was necessary to comply with a legal obligation, i.e. the obligation to protect health and safety of employees and other people visiting the workplace. However, we have found it quite difficult to argue that it's necessary to know an employee's vaccination status. For one thing, this was because there was no government guidance in the UK requiring or even recommending this. And in addition, there were lots of other ways to protect people's safety, which were far less intrusive. So this was through obviously social distancing, requiring staff to be tested regularly. And so most employers chose to rely on testing and other methods rather than on the um, checking vaccination status. One issue for employers now that we've largely come through the worst of the pandemic is what to do with all this extra information that they've collected. And one overriding principle of the UK GDPR is that employers should only retain information for as long as it's needed. And so some employers are starting to go back and tidying up their records to get rid of anything that they no longer need. Many employers, though, might miss this. Yeah, that's a good tip for UK employers and also in many other EU jurisdictions to get rid of such data and certainly not keep it in your records. Any extra word or tips you may tell us about, Ailey? I'm particularly thinking about data regarding mental health or specific data employers could collect regarding employees in a home office situation. Yeah, so we've seen an increasing number of organizations collecting mental health information about their employees. For example, an individual's anxiety about getting vaccinated or returning to the office or traveling on public transport. And of course, mental health information is also health data, so is classed as special category data and therefore needs to be handled as such. And then the other thing we've seen as a result of remote working during the pandemic is an increase employers wanting to monitor their staff to ensure that they're working. So we started to see things like keystroke monitoring technology and checking when staff log on and off. And I actually read a, an interesting statistic on this recently, which found that the number of remote workers who reported being monitored by an at-home camera has more than doubled since April last year. Yeah, no surprise about that. That gives me the idea maybe to broaden a little bit our discussion. How about the way employers in the UK, when they want to try maybe to monitor the employees' activities, what would be your recommendation in that respect when it comes to monitoring them? Yeah, so in the UK, employers can legally monitor their employees' activities, but they need to be careful about their lawful basis for doing it, how they communicate it as well, and how they treat the data that they collect from it. As good practice, employers should fully inform their employees as to what monitoring takes place and why they're monitoring them. Covert monitoring, for example, can only be justified where there are grounds for suspecting criminal activity. So employers should be putting in place very clear policies on their monitoring activities, which should be communicated with staff at induction stage. And they should be regularly reminding staff about those policies too. And this is, this is important as employers who manage expectations on monitoring are less likely to face claims from disgruntled employees who feel they're being spied on. Where staff need to have access to information that's obtained through monitoring, 
employers should ensure that access is limited only to those who need to have access and consider why each employee requires that access. And I would say that it's a good idea to give those staff members appropriate training on data protection and security. So any monitoring that does take place should obviously be limited. It should be targeted and it should also be time bound. So monitoring the content of emails, for example, should be proportionate to the desired purpose. When it comes to monitoring private communications, I think employers should be mindful that employees have an expectation of privacy. Emails that have been clearly stated personal should only be opened if there are clear grounds for concern, such as criminal activity or the transfer of sensitive commercial data, if that's been suspected. So if the organisation is carrying out large amounts of surveillance, we would advise that they carry out a data protection impact assessment before conducting any monitoring which should highlight specific concerns, the risks and the benefits to the business of obviously monitoring and to ensure that they're justified and balanced against the employee's rights. So employers should consider if there are less intrusive ways to protect their business, which would reduce any intrusion on the employees and then risk any breach of their obligations under the UK GDPR. Now we're coming back to the GDPR anyway, obviously, Ailey, no, no, no surprise. But I think this is very useful, particularly in case of litigation and kind of evidence or exhibits you can bring before a court when the employer, I'm sure in the UK it's the same, when the employer wants to complain or wants to establish proof of certain mismanagement or, or wrongdoings from the employee, that proof, that evidence must have been clearly and legally obtained even through a surveillance monitoring mechanism. Although common law is not a great area of my expertise, I was wondering, Ailey, when I was listening to you, if there would be any room for an employee to claim breach of trust or breach of confidence in this kind of context? Yes, there is. And that comes down to kind of the importance of them identifying or informing the employee before you do it, before you start any of the monitoring. So there is always a risk that an employee who feels that they have been excessively watched might argue a breach of trust and confidence, which could result in compensation claims for breach of contract or, or even unfair dismissal. And so employers who engage in unlawful monitoring could also face unlimited damages and potential fines under the data protection laws, although in practice, those claims are, are quite rare. But it is a reminder that it's crucial that employers treat any monitoring with caution and make sure they're carrying out any monitoring activities carefully and fairly. Thank you for that tip. Now, uh, and that will be my last question to you today, Ailey. Would there be any additional issues or consideration that you would like to talk to us about that has been raised by the increase in remote and hybrid working? Yeah, so as, as with many, many countries um, in the UK, we've seen a real increase in the number of employees working from home or for part of the week or, or all of the week following the pandemic, which obviously does raise data protection considerations, particularly around security and appropriate organisational measures. I would say that employers should remember their ongoing obligations under the UK GDPR to take appropriate technical and organisational measures in respect of the personal data that they process to ensure a level of security appropriate to the risks associated with the processing. And this is especially important where employees deal with special categories of personal data or highly confidential customer data. And there are some simple steps employers can take, like issuing equipment that helps maintain security. So ensuring staff use privacy screens when working remotely, as well as reminding staff of their obligations to be very careful with um, confidential personal data. And the UK regulator, the, the ICO, as I mentioned earlier, has actually issued a security checklist to help employers remain compliant with the data protection laws, given the increase in hybrid working. And I think it's quite a useful checklist. 
So, for example, employers are advised to have clear policies and procedures and guidance for staff who are remote working, which covers topics such as accessing, handling and disposing of personal data. They should also be reminding staff to use complex passwords, configure multi-factor authentication where possible, and consider using remote application solutions to prevent their employees from using their own personal applications to process personal data. And finally, it's always worth advising staff to use their corporate email account and not rely on their own email or messaging accounts when storing or transmitting any personal data. But organisations are generally advised to go back and look at the data protection security policies and make sure they still work in the, in the hybrid working world. Excellent. Well, thank you for those last practical recommendations, Ailey. And I wanted to thank you for your time today. It's been a very interesting discussion. We, the ELA member firms in Europe, will continue to update our listeners, our audience, on any new business or legal developments that may come up within the next few weeks or few months. Ailey, thanks again. And if you would like to connect with Ailey, please click on her bio in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of the, our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. In addition, search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive global employer handbook. You have been listening to Employment Matters, a broadcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I am Philippe Durand. Thanks for listening today.